Today, as I was uh, finishing up my preparation, I was sitting at Amy's desk in the office, little office we have in our house. I was sitting at her desk because my desk is the one place in the house still stacked with boxes from our move a few weeks ago. By a few weeks, I mean two and a half months ago. Um, I was looking out our front window, and there was a lady walking her dog, and the lady and her dog had the same hair color, and it wasn't one color. Um, I think that was natural for the dog um, and not as much for her. And they had the same haircut, which was, I thought was pretty amazing. Does that have anything to do with my sermon? I just wanted to share that story. All right, Romans 12, Paul writes this. So, my dear family, this is my appeal to you by the mercies of God. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Worship like this brings your mind into line with God's. What's more, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can work out what God's will is, what is good, acceptable, and complete. Before I talk a little bit about this passage, which if you've been around community church for any length of time, this is not the first time you've heard me dive into this passage. It's one I come back to again and again because I think it has so much application seasonally for us. But before I get into that, I want to kind of give away the ending of, of what uh, I'm after today, where I want to end up, because we've spent the summer talking about spiritual disciplines, and we're going to transform, transition in the next couple of weeks into a fall series where we get into what we actually believe as the church. And before we dive into that, I want to kind of build a bridge, a little bridge tonight between um, that summer of teaching on the things that we do with our time and with our lives as Jesus followers to a fall of teaching on what we actually believe and the connection between those two. And so ultimately, I want to say two things today about why what we're going to do this fall matters, why our beliefs matter even and especially in light of us gaining, hopefully gaining as a community together, some traction in modifying what we do and reforming our habits and our disciplines. And those two things I want to say about the importance of our belief, beliefs today are this. First, our identity is rooted in what we believe. And second, our transformation and our endurance depend on what we believe. So we'll circle back to all of that. Um, but I, I do want to start with these words of Paul in Romans 12, which have become, like I said, kind of a home base I return to again and again. I don't preach a Romans 12 sermon between every series, <laughs> uh, but I preach one every two or three years, and uh, that's for a reason. So I see this in light of what we've done this summer as a kind of manifesto that Paul has written uh, that, that can apply to all of that conversation about spiritual disciplines. Um, this, this emphasis that we've put on giving every part of our lives over to God and to his ways, even in the details of your days and your hours, making a point of building our life, not just trying to, to fit spiritual stuff in where we can, but building our life our lives around God and his ways, about bringing our common routines, what we just do naturally every day, into line 
with the rhythms of life with God. That's, that's been kind of the point that we've built toward in talking about these disciplines. And I think what Paul says here uh, is, like I said, kind of a manifesto for that kind of transformation, even down into the details of our lives. And as I said two weeks ago, ago the goal in growing in spiritual disciplines is not um, any one of those disciplines. It's not even uh, the overall act of growing in discipline itself. We're not aiming at proficiency. We're not aiming at achievement. We're not trying to be good at spiritual disciplines. That's not the end of what we're doing. The aim is Jesus. The aim of all of that is to draw near to him, believing that he's drawing near to us and that he will, in that drawing near, transform us. We're reordering our lives. If we embrace spiritual disciplines, we're reordering our lives by reordering our days, by reordering our hours so that we have space in those hours and in those days and in our lives for Jesus to draw near and change us. That's the point of all of it. We're offering, as Paul words it here, we're offering our bodies, we're offering our whole selves as a sacrifice. We're saying, I'm not going to try to fit Jesus into my life. I am going to give my whole life here and let him change and reorder everything for us. And Paul says here, part of that reordering is that he brings our minds, what we think and how we think, into line with his when we offer ourselves in that way. And, and the expectation, I talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, but it's something I wanna be sure that we keep talking about. The expectation is that if we do that, if we change those details of our lives, if we give him our bodies, if we give him our whole selves and let him begin to transform us, transformation will actually happen and not just this sort of supernatural, metaphysical transformation that says my soul is okay when I die but real transformation, real change. Instead of being, this is N.T. Wright's translation of this passage, and it's the one I tend to come back to since I first read it because I love the way he phrases this part of the scripture in verse two. Instead of being squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age, we will be transformed as our minds function in a new way. And this, when this happens, Paul says here, we will, and this is, uh, this is a verse that I take not just in preaching, but in talking with people, I try to take people back to over and over again because we talk so much about wanting to know the will of God. And Paul tells us pretty clearly here, here here's how you know the will of God. As you are transformed, not only will you know as your mind is changed, not only will you know differently who God is and what his will is, but Paul says you will actually work out the will of God in your life. We will live in real, tangible ways the will of God. Everything about us, not just what we believe, though we'll see that that's important, but also how we think, and not just how we think, but how we live, everything will be different. In fact, I think when we offer our whole lives to Jesus, the way we think and we live will be different in two very clear ways. The first is that it will be different the way that we think and the way that we live will be different than a life squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. If we're being transformed, we will not look like everything else around us. And this is not a sermon about how terrible the world is. This is a very take Paul at his word moment of 
If we are being transformed by Jesus, we are not being squeezed into the shape of the present age. And that age, as we've talked about, is constantly squeezing. I think sometimes we tend to uh, feel okay going into neutral spiritually because uh, we think, I'm not exactly sure what it means to be transformed, or I'm not exactly sure what the will of God is. And I think there's a caution built in here that if you're not being shaped by one, you're being shaped by the other. That age that you live in is constantly putting pressure. It is constantly trying to shape us into its form. And so if we're being transformed, we look differently than that. But I also think it's clear in, in Paul's writing here and the whole of the scripture that if we're being transformed, it will change the way that we think and live now, even if you've been a believer for decades, that you're not done. You have not attained, Paul says it repeatedly, I have not attained full maturity. The gospel has not had its full effect on me yet. So if it is changing me, if it is transforming me, and transforming me over time, there is going to be evidence of that in my life. There's going to be change that happens. And it's good and it's right for us to find what we tried to find this summer, which are these practical entry points into this endeavor of being transformed into the image of Jesus and into the life of the kingdom, which is different than the kingdom of the world. It's good to grab on to those spiritual disciplines and, and focus on those things. They are a gift to us, I think, that God gives us in that way. They're practical doorways that are really not that hard for us to find and for us to open. They are doorways into this life of transformation, into the life of the kingdom. But it's also essential, I think, that we not just find the doorways, that we, that, that we don't just go into them, but we remember that whatever room that doorway takes us into, the room of prayer, is not the end unto itself. These are meant to be doorways into real life, transformative, long-term, whole life, life with Jesus. And we're only going to find life in those disciplines, in those changes in the practical parts of our lives that we make if we remember that the purpose and the, of our efforts, the purpose of those disciplines is discovering and rediscovering the goodness of God and the goodness of the life that he made us for. Um, I'm, uh, I'm kind of fascinated by the comedy world. I, don't, I can't remember if I've shared any part of this or this particular story here before. If I have, it's been a long time. Um, I'm, I'm drawn to this world of people who are funny for a living. Um, and... It's not because I'm an aspiring stand-up or anything like that, um, but I just, I really admire people who can be smart and funny. Uh, there's, a, there's another level of funny that I'm not as drawn to, but I'm intrigued by the fact um, that what we tend to experience in consuming comedy and in encountering comedy on our end, whether that's in a stand-up routine or a book or a movie or a show or whatever, um, is just the end result of this whole world that most of us don't know anything about, the whole lifestyle of people who are, who are working so hard to be funny for us. Um, 
I've read some books about this. Several years ago, I read a book called I'm Dying Up Here. Let me just say that if you dive into understanding the world of comedy, there's all kinds of uh, inappropriate material out there, so use discernment and all of that. But several years ago, I, I read a book called I'm Dying Up Here, which is kind of the story of the Comedy Store, which is a really famous L.A. comedy club where Robin Williams and Richard Pryor and Letterman and Leno and all these people came up. At the comedy store in the 70s, um, I'm reading a David Letterman biography right now. There's some really great documentaries out there about different parts of the comedy world that I've seen. But if you don't know anything about this world, um, it's easy to assume that it's all fun and games, right? I mean, that's the point of it, is fun. But it's really a grind, the life that they, most of them live, and the path to what we receive as funny is often not very funny. Um, these people are out there. It's not, it's not all that different from musicians who are kind of in, in the dredges trying to make it as musicians. It might be a little sadder, in fact. Um, they're killing themselves. They're making no money. They're trying to make it. Most of them don't make it. And even if they do, and this is one of the sadder parts of it to me, even if they do, even really successful, funny people um, are sort of miserable <laughs> because... The, the, the success feels fleeting to them as it does in all areas of life and the drive to keep being funny. I mean, they work for years to build up 45 minutes of really funny material and then we've all heard it. And now how do I get 45 more minutes in the next six months when that took me six years? Uh, this is kind of the nature of that, of that world. Most of them end up miserable trying to find a way to keep being funny. Um, it's probably part of why I'm drawn to this, this world because it's such a fascinating study to me in the realities of being human that don't change no matter your circumstances. I mean, is there a greater tragedy than this realization that the funniest people in the world are tortured souls trying to make us all laugh? I mean, where should it be easier for life to be fun than in the funny business, right? Um, but one of the things I kind of over time as I've read and watched that I've seen is that the ones who sort of stay sane and do continue to find some joy in that world and what they do are the ones that can keep in front of them why they went into comedy in the first place, what drove them at the very beginning to try to be funny. And truly, consistently, almost without exception, what I've seen in those people is that often that goal that keeps them enjoying what they do is remembering that they started trying to make one person laugh. And I don't just mean any one person, I mean someone specific. They started because there was someone in their life that they wanted to think they were, for them to think, I'm funny. Um, I came across a number of years ago a documentary, a PBS documentary on, on, on Johnny Carson. How many people actually remember watching Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? Man, it's a small number of hands. <clears throat> uh, Johnny Carson was uh, how you made it in, in his heyday as a comedian, was getting on his show, performing on his show, and doing well on his show. And the comedy store that I talked about before was kind of the the place where you were trying to make it at the comedy store so the Carson Scouts would see you and put you on The Tonight Show. And um, Letterman, Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, Ellen, a lot of these people made it. They, they, we know who they are because of Johnny Carson. But, and and the, that documentary tells uh, the, this, his story, Carson's story, through a lot of their eyes. But my favorite 
in that documentary is Drew Carey. And that's not because Drew Carey is my favorite comedian. He's a cheese ball, especially now that he's a game show host. Um, and, and I don't find him all that funny. But um, in that documentary, I loved the way that he told his Johnny Carson story. Um, he describes the curtain opening before he came out to perform the very first time. And you can just see the childlike wonder in his eyes. And he says, it was exactly like my dream. I mean, it was just everything was unfolding just as I dreamed it. And then he starts into his routine and he looks over and Johnny Carson is literally holding on to the desk trying to stay in his chair because he's laughing so hard at Carrie's material. And this is it. I mean, this is the pinnacle. This is what he's trying to do is make Carson laugh. And then if you were really good when you performed, Johnny would say, come on over to the desk after you were done. And you would get to sit at the desk for just often just a minute. And that almost never happened the first time someone came on the show, but for Drew Carey, it did. The first time he ever performed, Carson thought he was really funny. He called him over um, and had him sit down. And in this moment where we're talking about comedy, I mean, the whole thing is about comedy, Jim, uh, Drew Carey, who of all comedians, kind of, he kind of has that sort of uh, always smiling thing going on with him, you know, and he's just weeping as he tells this story. Uh, there's another story in that same, though it's about uh, Johnny Carson, there's another story in there where Chris Elliott, you know who Chris Elliott is? You probably know him by sight if you don't know his name, but he came up under David Letterman. Letterman hired him as a writer, and then he started working for Letterman. And he said this in that, that, that documentary, a lot of what I've done and what I do now is really still trying to make Dave Letterman laugh. Even though I don't work for the guy anymore, and even if I'm on a competing show that's on at the same time the late show is on, I'm hoping Dave will find the character I'm doing funny. And those are fun examples um, that Drew Carey's like, goal was for Johnny Carson to find him funny. Sorry, there's Dave Letterman too. Drew, Drew Carey's goal was for Johnny Carson to find him funny, Chris Elliott's goal coming up, and then even once he succeeded in Dave Letterman finding him funny, hiring him, and him graduating from working for Dave Letterman, what he's still always thinking about is, am I, am I, is Dave going to find this funny? Am I making him laugh? And this, I think, to me, is essential. This, this way of seeing why we're doing what we're doing is essential in our putting down real roots with spiritual disciplines so that we experience lasting transformation, both in our habits related to the disciplines and in our lives as a result of the disciplines. I think we have to remember why we're doing it. These people, for whatever success they achieved, there were thousands and thousands of hours of quiet, obscure work to be funny. And then when they got there, there was still this understanding of why they were doing it. And we have to remember what we were doing. And I think truly it's to make God laugh. I think the point of us embracing spiritual disciplines, the point of us embracing a life of being transformed so that we're made into the image of Jesus and that our, the kingdom is coming in our life and through our lives is to create joy for God. The purpose of our lives is the delight of God as he sees his kingdom come in us and through us. 
We have to remember, no matter how much we're focused on, on what we do, and I think we have to focus on that for all the reasons that we've been talking about, we have to remember why we're doing it. And that is because God finds joy when we embrace the life that he made us for. We pursue these transformative doorways into life with God, not just because the disciplines are good in and of themselves, though they are, but because God has demonstrated that life with him is worth entering into. It's worth taking hold of once and for all for us. So we offer our hours. We offer our days and our bodies and our lives as living sacrifices to be completely transformed because life with God is worth that. It's worth it. In fact, this whole passage in Romans 12 that we get from Paul has a source. It has an origin. He tells us there's a reason I'm telling you to live that way. The passage begins in this translation with so, the the translation that most of us are probably familiar with says, therefore, because of the thing I've just written, live this way. And this so or therefore is the word that sets up this whole notion that we should give our lives to God. It sets up the big picture of that, that yes, broadly speaking, we should give our lives to God and take hold of the big picture. And it, I think, also tells us why the days and the hours matter, why it matters that we're intentional down to the details of our lives of letting him set the agenda. Why would we do any of that? Why would we sacrifice ourselves and the specifics of our lives. And, and the answer from Paul, this, that what becomes before the so, what comes before the therefore, is frankly all of Romans up to that point. I'm not about to preach Romans 1 through 11 uh, at this point in the sermon, but the whole book of Romans up to that point, I think, is, a, is the, um, what precedes Paul saying as a result of all of that, because that's all true. Here's how you should live. Romans 1 through 11 is a detailed articulation of what's true about God and about God's mercy for us. Those 11 chapters are just jam-packed with gospel doctrine. And you may be scared of the word doctrine or theology or belief because of bad past experiences, but that's what's there in Romans. I don't think the whole Bible is just a dispensation of doctrine, but Romans 1 through 11 is just teeming with gospel doctrine about what's true about God, what's true about us as humans, how Jesus steps into all of that and changes it all. It is a lot of belief about our reality, about who God is. Paul is articulating what we know and what we believe about God's love for us. And after he does that, he says, so, give him everything. I'm going to focus on just the very last part of, of chapter 11 to give you a sense of what he does. Before, I'll just tell you, we're not going to look at these verses tonight, though we'll come back to this idea a little bit in the series this fall. But before he, he, he writes what we're about to see, he does this really, if you've never read the verses right before this in Romans 11, I encourage you to read them because it's a really fascinating sort of um, thing that Paul does in describing that the way that God shows his mercy and has shown his mercy over time, he basically says, uh, people rejected God. God chose a people to show mercy to Israel. Israel rejected God. So God then 
looked at the whole world and showed mercy to the whole world, even as Israel was rejecting him. And as those outside of Israel receive God's mercy, it presents this new invitation to Israel who rejected his mercy to now receive it, which he's still, by the way, offering to them. And then those of us over here at times will reject his mercy. And as Israel receives his mercy, we will see the effect of that there's this ongoing dynamic that Paul describes in the mercy of God, and it all just says God is relentless in showing us mercy. That's who he is. That's how we relate to him. So let's respond to that, he says, therefore. But he punctuates all of that with what is essentially a song at the end of Romans 11. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. We cannot search his judgments. We cannot fathom his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has given him counsel? Who has given a gift to him for which he needs who has given a gift to him which needs to be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Glory to him forever. Amen. And then he says, so as a result of that truth about who God is and how generous he is to us. Therefore, I appeal to you because of his mercies, because he is so merciful to us. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be transformed. Because God is all in all, and because he loves us, and because he shows us mercy so freely, give your life to him. There's no life that will satisfy other than the life found in the one about whom we can say, from him and through him and to him are all things. And we spent the summer talking about the transforming power of what we do. That if we want to uh, be found as people who are shaped into the life of Jesus, that we have to live in that direction. What we do matters to that transforming. And like I said, I believe in that. And for the fall, we're going to be talking about keeping our eyes on the purpose and the object of what we do, the delight of God as he sees us embrace his mercy, as he sees his kingdom come in us and through us and transforming us. We'll be talking and redirecting our attention to this story, this story of this God who has relentlessly found ways to show us mercy. We'll be talking about the nature of God, the nature of humans, the nature of the world, and how Jesus has stepped in to reconcile all of that. We'll be talking about what we believe and the role that our beliefs play in our transformation. So, as we turn that corner, um, I wanna leave you with the two thoughts that I gave you at the beginning about the importance of our beliefs. The first one is this, our identity is rooted in what we believe. In Titus 3, Paul writes this, but when the kindness and generous love of God, of, our sa of, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works that we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his own mercy, through the washing of the new birth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out richly upon us through Jesus our King and Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace 
and be made his heirs in accordance with the hope of the life of the age to come. And he punctuates this by saying, the saying is sure. Paul says, this is what we believe. We're justified. We're heirs. You can believe it. It is sure. This is who we are because we believe that the generous love of God, our Savior, appeared and was poured out richly upon us through Jesus. Our beliefs about how Jesus has acted in space and time in our lives shape our identity. They enable, enable us to understand that we stand justified before God, that we are heirs to his kingdom. Second statement is this. Our transformation and endurance depend on what we believe. Let me read you a passage from 2 Corinthians 4, and then I'll say a couple of words about this. Paul says, We have the same spirit of faith as you see in what is written. I believed, and so I spoke. We too believe, and so we speak, because we know that the God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Now remember, as we read the rest of what he writes here, that the rest of what he writes here is a result of the fact that Paul says... We believe, we're speaking what we believe, and we believe that the God who raised Jesus will raise us with Jesus. And then he says this, for this reason, we don't lose heart. Even if our outer humanity is decaying, our inner humanity is being renewed day by day. This slight momentary trouble of ours is working to produce a weight of glory, passing and surpassing everything, lasting forever. For we don't look at the things that can be seen, but at the things that can't be seen. After all, the things you can see are here today and gone tomorrow. But the things that you can't see are everlasting. We will only be changed by spiritual disciplines. We will only endure in that life of transformation if all of that is rooted in true and meaningful belief about Jesus. Paul says that we can be sure of this even though everything around us is falling apart. Inwardly, we're being renewed and that the kingdom is coming. The renewed kingdom is coming and our reality will be transformed. We can be sure of that because of what we believe about Jesus. Because as Michael talked about at the very beginning tonight, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he set into motion a life of resurrection that even those of us who decide, I will give my whole life, I will die with Jesus, I will take on my life the shape of the cross can be sure that resurrection is coming. That whatever we die to, whatever we lose along the way, whatever we give away will be given back to us abundantly in the life, the resurrection life of Jesus. And we can only endure as people. We are not going to endure because we get really good at prayer or Bible study or any of the disciplines or all of the disciplines that we talked about if our belief is not anchored correctly in this truth of who Jesus is. It is essential that we know what we believe because it's how we will endure and it's how we will be transformed. We've talked uh, here and, and in the member meeting 
um, and it's been a subject of conversation in our elder meetings about it being time for us to mature in some ways as a community, and one of those uh, has to do with mission. And I just want to say, as a, as a kind of tag on this conversation, we will only be people who are ready and willing to join Jesus on his mission outside of our kind of current safe zone, whatever we have already given him access to. We will only be people who are ready to join him if we are convinced by what we believe about Jesus that it's worth it to give space in our life to that. Otherwise, we will be bound up by some sense of obligation or guilt or churchy like, I know I'm supposed to care about other people, whether they're hungry or whether they know about Jesus, all the full spectrum of this idea of mission. We, we will try to squeeze some of that, or we might not even try. We might just kind of shield ourselves from all of that talk. But as we move together as a community, we will only change and grow up in this if our belief about Jesus and what he is doing in our life and what he wants to do through our lives and in our community and in our world is sure and it convinces us that I've got to yield some of this space in my life that I'm giving to other things to joining him on that mission. And we as a people have got to yield some of the space we're giving to other things. That's not the whole of this, but it's an area that we're talking about needing to grow in. And it is anchored in a belief that Jesus is on the move. And he's not stopping with me. So once he moves in me, I can't just check that box and coast to the end. I'm joining him on the move. What I believe about who he is and what he's doing matters. And that's why we're going to spend time talking about that. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered here in some sense uh, because we already know this is true, that um, we have already said, probably most, if not all of us, that we believe. That we believe what um, the scriptures tell us is true about God and about him sending Jesus. And in some way that has altered our lives, altered our reality, And so my, my prayer for us tonight is that we wouldn't be people who have one time believed and just sort of casually drifted into this life of Christianity, but that we would be people who continue to remember the ways that our beliefs anchor us, and that we'd be people who enter that life of transformation because we see Jesus, we hear the story and we say, yes, I believe. And where we don't, we say, help my unbelief. And that we wouldn't be afraid to be those people. Most of us are living the life of the one who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So here we are together saying that to you. We believe, help our unbelief. Show us who you are and what's true. Invite us to your table so that we can come and sit with confidence in that invitation and in your love for us. 
As we do every week, we're going to take communion, and it is, as always, meant to remind us that Jesus says, come to my table. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, your justification is not based on you and what you've done. It's based on my love and my mercy. So because of Jesus, come and receive and